This is episode 133 of the Church Venture Northwest podcast. We're continuing Men's Roundup 2014, Endurance with Paul Tripp. This is session three from Saturday night. Well, I want to uh, talk about some more resources and give some things away. This book is called Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. I mean, think think about this, guys. You've never had a relationship in your life that hasn't disappointed you in some way. Isn't that amazing? What is God doing in the messiness of our relationships to transform us by His grace? That's what this book is about. Okay, you got to be quiet enough for me to talk about the book first. I have a deal with you. (laughs) This is called A Quest for More, Living for Something Bigger Than You. That's what we've been called to do, to live for a kingdom better, bigger than the claustrophobic little minuscule kingdom of one. Uh, What does it look like in your everyday life to live for God's kingdom. That's what this book is about. Now, the people up front always end up complaining because I throw frisbees way back there and I ignore you. Do you feel ignored? Are you ready? Can you do this? That was so sad, I had to do that. (laughs) Okay, now I want you to be honest. I'm going to give this next resource to the most honest man in the room. Okay, you ready for this? I'm asking for rapid, quick honesty. Public rapid, rapid, quick honesty. Anybody here have an anger problem? You sound angry. You just have to wait here for a moment. This is called How to Be Good and Angry at the Same Time. Listen. Listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. God's anger is not the embarrassing uncle of His characteristics to hide from the rest of the family. You could argue that God's anger is the hope of the universe. If God wasn't angry with sin, there would have been no cross. In a fallen world, God doesn't want you unangry. He wants you righteously angry. What does it look like to be good and angry at the same time? God bless. This man confessed, God knew. (laughs) I'm a pastor, I can't help it. Listen, one of the places you need to endure 
is in parenting. Listen, guys, hear this. Hear this. I'm trying to be serious up here. <laughs> Absolutely, I'm up here just trying to serve Jesus. Listen. Listen. So much of your irritation, so much of your anger with your children, so much of those nasty words, so much of that pushing, shoving, poking, slapping that's done in the name of Christian discipline that is neither Christian nor parenting is the result of unwillingness to wait. Listen, parenting is not an event, it's a process. And we want, we want instant results so we get self-parenting children. And one of the places where God calls you to be a tool of His grace is as a dad. Listen, if your eyes ever see and your ears ever hear the sin, weakness, and failure of your children, it's never an accident. It's never an interruption. It's never a hassle. It's always grace. God loves those children. He put them into a family of faith, and He's going to reveal their sin to you so you can be part of His instrumentality of change and redemption. Isn't that awesome? It's always grace. That's what this series is about, getting to the heart of parenting. What does it look like to be a tool of real heart change in the life of your children? It lays a foundation for you, and then it tracks 0 to 5, 6 to 12, 13 till only God knows. Well, you don't need me to tell you this, but we live in a culture that's gone sex and money insane. There's no more sanity out there. You can barely look at your computer or go to a mall or look at a magazine or watch television or go to a movie or listen to a song without having your morals assaulted. And I believe that the downturn of an American economy is not just because of bad banks and predatory Wall Street, but because we have a culture that has become accustomed to living way beyond its means. We've gone crazy. And listen, if all you needed to be sexually pure was accountability and all you needed to stay out of debt was a good budget, there'd be a whole lot more pure people and a whole lot more people out of debt. These issues root at a deeper heart level. Why are they so troublesome for us? Why are they so seductive to us? And what does God give us in His grace to release us from that insanity? That's what this book is about. Sex and money. Pleasures that leave you empty and grace that satisfies. <laughs> Here's a video about sex and money. Oh, before you show the video, can you hold it for a minute? I just want to say this. This video is a visual word picture of that insanity. As you're watching that word picture, listen carefully to the words that are being said. The man was well-dressed, well-educated, theologically aware, but completely insane. The way he saw things made no sense. 
His rational world was simply irrational. How could he make good decisions when inside of him was complete chaos? The dangerous thing about being insane is that you don't know you're insane. Convinced he was okay, the man was in grave danger. But it's not just this man. Sin makes us all insane. It reduces us all to fools. We see beauty where God sees ugly. We see truths where God knows only lies are found. We insert ourselves into the center of our world, the place for God and God alone, created for Him. We make it all about us, my will, my plan, my way. We search for life and instead find only death. So we all need to be rescued. Not from the things we crave and desire. We need to be rescued from us. Rescued by grace that can make us sane once again. I was thinking to this afternoon about how difficult endurance is. How many guys here are married? Just raise your hands. You'll be able to relate to this. You know, endurance is so hard, it's, it's difficult for you to even endure through a conversation with your wife you don't want to have. It's true. You're, you're getting home at the end of your day, and if you are honest, all you really want is to be left alone. That's your dream. And your wife greets you at the door, and she says, Dear, I've got to talk to you about what happened today. You're already a little bit nervous. She says, I went out to lunch with seven of my girlfriends. And it was the most amazing conversation I've ever heard. I've got to tell you in detail. What all seven of my girlfriends said. You right now have no interest in that conversation at all, but you can't say that. You're thinking, put bamboo under my fingernails. <laughs> and so you've developed the skill of how to advance a conversation without listening. You've gotten good at it. She starts talking. Here's what you hear. <laughs> She stops and you say, and what happened next? <laughs> You'd even hear what happened before. 
So now she thinks you're interested. She says, breaking the conversation, you say, and how'd that make you feel? You can keep this going for a long time. You're not listening at all. You're doing fantasy football in your brain. I mean, think of how many moments, even in marriage, you check out on a minor conversation. That's how important this topic is. It is much more natural for sinners to quit than to continue. Do you hear what I said? It's much more natural for sinners to quit than continue. Continuance is always a work of God's grace because it's not natural for us. It's not natural for me to be patient. It's not natural for me to wait. And in those moments, I don't so much need to be rescued from that situation or rescued from that person or rescued from that conversation. You've got to get a hold of this. This is what this weekend is about. I need to be rescued from me. My problem and endurance exist inside of me, not outside of me. Now here's what we said so far. If you're going to endure, you have to know where God has placed you. This life between the already and the not yet. If you're going to endure, you have to understand what God is doing. And He's working through the circumstances of life, to craft you into a man of faith. That is a single-focused zeal. There's a third thing. You need to know who you are. You need to know who you are. You need to have your identity screwed on right. I got the call no father ever wants to get. I was about six hours away from Philadelphia with my assistant, Steve, who's here with me. And my wife was on the other end of the phone. Lowell is a very level person. She doesn't have emotional ups and downs. I'm the passionate, crazy person in our family. God, in His wisdom, didn't put two crazy people together. It's a wonderful thing. But I could tell by the quiver in her voice that something serious had happened. She told me that I need to get home as fast as I could, that our daughter was in the highest level of intensive care, that she'd been in a horrible accident. Nicole was walking down the street after work in Philadelphia. A drunken, unlicensed driver driving an SUV lost control of the vehicle, careened up on the sidewalk, and crushed her against a wall. She had massive injuries. Eleven breaks of her pelvis alone had shattered the whole center part of her skeleton. The doctors told us if it had happened in the suburb, Nicole wouldn't have made it to the hospital. Fortunately, she was a couple blocks from one of the best hospitals in Philadelphia. I'll never forget walking into 
that intensive care room seeing the broken body of my daughter sustained by machines. And I couldn't think of anything else to do but get up on the bed next to her. I did what any father with any love would do in his heart. I fell apart. And I crawled up on her bed, and I put my cheek next to her cheek. I didn't know if she could hear me or not. And I said, Nicole, you're not alone. Dad's here, and I'm not leaving, and God's here too. Tears came out of her eyes, down her cheeks. That kicked in four years of utter travail. I didn't go to my office for three months because Nicole was in such remarkable pain. There was no position she could be in without horrible pain. We literally sat for 24-7 with our hands on her just to give her hope. A week in, they kept upping her medication, upping her medication to try to give her some kind of relief, and they OD'd her and had to revive her. It was very, very, very hard. Now, when you go through those kind of experiences, when the unexpected, the unwanted, the unplanned enters your door, hear what I'm about to say, you will preach some kind of gospel to yourself. I say this all the time, and I'm going to continue to say it, that preachers like me are not the preacher you listen to the most. The preacher you listen to the most is you. I say this all the time. No one's more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. Most of us learned it's best not to move our lips. And when you're talking to yourself, don't change places. They'll put you away. But you're in a constant conversation with yourself, and the things that you say to you about you, about God, about life, are profoundly important. They're formative of how you will then respond. Now, Luella, my dear wife, tells me that I don't finish the story of Nicole and I leave groups in utter trauma. Well, by God's grace, Nicole is doing very, very well. You may not even know that she was in an accident of that seriousness, but it, and for her, it's really been a life-altering experience, unbelievable suffering. Now, I want to take you to Psalm 27. Psalm 27 is a psalm of trouble, but it's also a psalm of identity. Let me say that again. Psalm 27 is a psalm of trouble, but it's also a psalm of identity. Because one of the things that gets exposed when you're going through trial is where you're looking to find identity. One of the reasons we suffer so in moments of trial is because the things that we've looked to for our peace and security are now challenged by the trial. Suffering will expose where you look for identity. Let me say that again. Suffering 
will expose where you look for identity. Let me just read for you the first five verses of Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in a shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high on a rock. The scholars who study these things say that Psalm 27 was written out of one of two very, very difficult experiences in David's life. Either it was written when David was fleeing the jealous, vengeful wrath of Saul. You remember the story, David had done nothing wrong. He was a loyal servant of Saul, but the anointing of God was upon David. The power of God was upon David, and Saul was murderously jealous. It was a, it was a situation of gross personal injustice. Or other scholars say that perhaps Psalm 27 was written when David was fleeing from his own son Absalom. Absalom was conspiring to take the throne from his father, King David. And in a monarchy, the way to take the throne is to kill the king. Unbelievable, horrible family betrayal. And you really get how, in that story with Absalom, how there's no way that this is going to have a good end to it. And the report comes that Absalom has been killed and David doesn't celebrate. He crumbles in one of the po most poignant moments in the Old Testament. says, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. Now in that kind of trouble, David writes these words. Facing gross injustice, facing deep personal family, heartbreaking family betrayal. But notice, look at your Bibles. Psalm 27 doesn't begin with trouble. Psalm 27 begins with theology. And part of your endurance is in moments of trouble preaching the sound theology of the Bible to yourself. It's never more important that you Remind yourself of those solid, life-giving truths than when you're going through moments that you would have never planned for yourself, that you never wanted for yourself, moments that tempt you in all kinds of ways. When you're going through difficulty, what do you say to you? Listen to what David says. The Lord is light. The Lord is salvation. The Lord is stronghold. What is light? Light in its 
purest form in Scripture is, is a word picture for what is pure and holy and just and righteous and true, reigning over this universe where there seems to be so much injustice, so much evil, so much unrighteousness, is one who is holy and righteous and true. Justice will win. The Lord is salvation. In its broadest sense, what does salvation mean? Salvation means deliverance from evil. Evil internal and evil external. We'll all be invited to the one funeral we actually want to go to. We'll be invited to the funeral of sin and death because sin and death will die. The Lord is stronghold. What's the picture there? The picture is of a fortified city. Thick-walled. A place to run when you're under attack. There is refuge. There is stronghold. There is a place to run. The Lord is light. The Lord is salvation. The Lord is stronghold. Now pay very careful attention here. I'm about to confuse you. What I've given you is nasty, bad, dangerous theology. Do you know why? Does anybody know why? Anybody? Because I've left out a word. A word in this, these verses that changes everything. A word that's used three times. you know the word? Say it. Say it. Say it like you mean it. The Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. The Lord is my stronghold. Now hear what I'm about to say. The theology doesn't just define who God is. It's meant to redefine who you are as His children. You don't just get God's identity from your theology, you get your identity from your theology. Listen, enough of academic, isolated, informational theology. It helps no one. David is not saying somehow, some way out there, there's light. Somehow, some way out there, there's salvation. No, he's saying something deeply encouraging and deeply personal and deeply identity forming. That glorious, undeserved grace, grace that I could have never achieved, deserved, or earned, has connected me to this one who is light. Grace has connected me to this one who is salvation. Grace has connected me to this one of stronghold. The Lord is light. For me, the Lord is salvation. For me, the Lord is stronghold. For me, there better be a my in the middle of your theology. Some of you suffer with impatience and irritation of the little details of your life because you have a God who's out there somewhere. You have a theology that doesn't touch street level. 
There's a very, very different sort of set of thoughts between what you're thinking on Sunday when you're singing worship songs and what you're thinking on Tuesday night. This is street-level, deeply personal, transformational truth. Hear this. God harnessed the forces of nature. He controlled the events of human history so that at a certain point of time, He would become light to you. He would become salvation to you. He would become stronghold to you. The Lord is your light. The Lord is your salvation. The Lord is your stronghold. Do you carry that identity through your life at street level? Do you? When you face injustice, what do you say to you? When you're grappling with sin that it feels like you can never defeat, what do you say to you? When you feel under attack and it feels like there's nowhere to go, there's nowhere to hide, what do you say to you? Do you say this? Hear this, brothers. This is your identity. Any other identity that you sign to yourself is a disastrous lie. Is that strong enough? You can feel my passion. I lived for years as a Christian. I worked years as a pastor, and I did not know who I was. Because theology was an abstraction to me. This is your identity. Anything else that you say to you about you will hurt you. And it means if the Lord is your light, the Lord is your salvation, the Lord is your stronghold, hear this. You are never left to the limited resources of your strength and wisdom and righteousness. You're just not. That's why Paul says, I can boast in my weaknesses. Because he knows this, I'm not limited by him. Because his grace is sufficient. It's made perfect in my weakness. Listen. Your problem isn't that you're weak. Your problem is your delusions of strength. They keep you from running to this identity. Your delusions of strength will keep you from saying this to you because you want to be tough. You want to be powerful. You want to be in control. You want to be a man. Listen, enough of the disastrous American rendition of malehood. I've had it up to here. I'm going to say it to you. A self-made man is always poorly made. David doesn't say to himself, I can handle Saul. I handled Goliath. I've got ten times more brain than Absalom has. Listen, 
Don't feed yourself the personal power, personal capability, independent righteousness junk. Stop it. It hurts you. This is your identity. That grace has connected you personally to the one who is light, to the one who is salvation, to the one who is stronghold. He is this for you. Here's what I want to say to you. This is worth writing down if you're taking notes. God is all that He is for you by grace. Isn't that amazing? Think about that. God is everything that He is for you by grace. That's what David's getting hold of. Everything that God is, He is for us by grace. Wow. 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 I want to say to you, that's what gets me up in the morning. That's in this last six months, in the slough of despond, that's the gospel I ran to. That's what I began to preach to myself. Now, if that's not radical, this is not really what's really radical about this passage. What's really radical about this passage is the juxtaposition, the contrast between verses 2 and 3 and verse 4. Let me read those to you. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in His temple. Now before I do the contrast, I want to just make one side reference, but I think it's a very important one. In verse 2, all of a sudden, this psalm gets very honest gets very gritty, gets very real about the things that you face in this fallen world. And I don't know about you, I love the Psalms. I love the Psalms for their honesty. I, I do think the Psalms are, are in the Bible to keep us honest about the messiness of faith. But here's what you're confronted with the shocking honesty of this Psalm. Here, here, here it is. Biblical faith will never require you to deny reality. Biblical faith will never require you to deny reality. Biblical faith will never ask you to deny the nasty realities of life in a fallen world. Biblical faith is not some saccharine, uh, silly smile and theological platitudes that help you to deny what's actually going on in your life. If you have to deny reality to reach personal peace, you may reach temporary personal peace, but I will tell you for sure, you're not exercising biblical faith. The Bible is shockingly honest. There are stories in the Bible that are so tawdry that if they were a paperback book in a local drugstore, you wouldn't buy them. Why is God doing that for us? He wants us to know that His power and grace reaches to the deepest, darkest experiences that any human being will ever face. As Corey Tim Boom said, there is no pit so deep that Jesus isn't deeper. I love 
the story of Abraham and Sarah that's recounted in Romans 4. Abraham had staked his entire existence on one single promise of God that out of him would come this great nation that would bless the nations of earth. And he was an old man, and Sarah was an old woman, and they waited for decades, and they hadn't had a son. And the Bible says this, Romans is very clear, it says that Abraham considered the deadness of Sarah's womb, and he grew strong in faith, being fully persuaded that the one who made the promise was able. Now, I think that's pretty specific. Abraham is not playing monkey games with the reality. He's facing the fact that this woman is way, way, way beyond any natural hope of having a child. He's not dying reality. But then it says something very interesting, which tells you something about Abraham. It says, as he was waiting, he grew stronger in faith, being more and more committed that God was able. Now, here's what that tells you. That although Abraham faced the difficult reality of Sarah's age, he didn't allow that difficult reality to be the source of his meditation. The source of his meditation was what? The glory and power of God. And the more he meditated on the glory and power of God, the more he became convinced that God could do this thing. Listen. The Bible will never ask you to deny reality, but if you make difficult realities your meditation, you're going down. When you're facing difficulty, when you're being asked to wait, is waiting for you a chronicle of strengthening faith? I think for most of us, waiting actually becomes a narrative of weakening faith. Because we're not actually meditating on God. What we get up every day, we do. We do it almost spontaneously. We get up every day and we pick up the problem again and we pull it apart and we think about it and we meditate on it. And the more we do that, the, the smaller we feel, the, the bigger the problem feels until we end up completely overwhelmed. Biblical faith will never require you to deny reality. But you must not make those difficult realities of life in a fallen world the source of your meditation. You must run to the sound theology of the Word of God to remember once again who God is and who you are as His child, that grace has connected you to all that God is because all that He is, He is for you by grace. Now the contrast. Listen to these words. When evildoers assail me... To eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army camp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Now think with me. If you actually had an army encamped against you to eat up your flesh, there's a pretty word picture, what would be the one thing you would pray for? 
How about weapons? That makes sense to me. Just give me weapons. How about God incinerate them? You're God. You can make fire happen. How about just suck me out and place me somewhere else? I think in difficulty, most of us pray, suck me out prayers. And I'll praise you. That's not what David asked for. What he says, when I'm facing murderous attack, deep injustice, personal betrayal, the one thing I want to do is run to the temple and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. What? Now, either this guy is just crazy or he's so super spiritual that none of us can relate to him or he's on to something. Why would David say that? Why would be the one thing that he would pray for? Think about it. When you're facing hard things, what is the one thing that you pray for again and again? I think for most of us, it's not David's prayer. This one thing, of all the things in this moment of difficult to ask for, of all the catalog of possibilities, there's only one thing I want, that I could run to the temple and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Why? Well, because of this. Because David understands that there exists in the universe one of such stunning inestimable beauty. Beauty beyond our ability to conceive. And this one is way more beautiful than any ugly thing that you will ever face in your life. Let me say that again. There exists one of stunning, glorious beauty who is way more beautiful than any ugly thing you will ever face in your life. In fact, it's deeper than that. Hear what I'm about to say. You will only understand the ugly things of life in a fallen world properly when you look at those things through the stunning beauty of your Redeemer. He's beautiful in sovereignty. He's beautiful in faithfulness. He's beautiful in patience. He's beautiful in love. He's beautiful in mercy. He's beautiful in grace. He's beautiful in power. He's beautiful. He's beautiful. He's beautiful. He's beautiful. And it's only when you look at life through the lens of the beauty of your Redeemer that you see life with accuracy and you know your identity and you have hope. That's why David says, I want to do this. I want to run to your temple. I want to gaze upon your beauty because it's only when I look at the ugliness and messiness of life through the lens of your beauty that I see it with accuracy and clarity and I don't want to quit. He's beautiful. And his beauty 
has been unleashed on you by grace. He's beautiful. He's beautiful. And that beauty has been unleashed on you by grace. You see, here's what happens to us in the press of life in a fallen world. We fall into becoming divine beauty amnesiacs. As the problems loom large, we forget the stunning beauty of our Redeemer. And when you forget who God is, you also begin to lose sight of who you are as His child because your identity is meant to be found vertically, not horizontally. And listen, as you forget who you are as a child of God, then you begin to shop for identity horizontally in the people and places and possessions of everyday life. Those are never meant to give you identity. Hear this, earth will never be your savior. There sits in this room this evening, in a group this size, men who are suffering from being divine beauty amnesiacs. There are men in this room who are suffering from being vertical identity amnesiacs. You've lost sight of God's beauty, and in losing sight of God's beauty, you've lost sight of your identity. No wonder you're struggling. No wonder you want to quit. No wonder it's hard for you to endure because you load life on your puny little shoulders. No wonder you're overwhelmed. I can never read this psalm without thinking of another moment in David's life. Israel, the army of Israel was assembled in the valley of Elah facing the Philistine army. They were the soldiers of the Lord Almighty, the Most High God. God had promised that he would deliver those nations into their hands. They armed themselves for battle there in the valley. And the very first day, instead of the whole Philistine army coming out, one great warrior came out, Goliath, and he essentially said, Give me your best soldier. Guess what the army of Israel did? Back to the tents to commiserate. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? They did that for 40 days. It's shocking. They did that because they were terrified, and they were terrified because they were identity amnesiacs. And because they were identity amnesiacs, stay with the logic here, they made this false spiritual equation. They were comparing their size to the size of Goliath. Well, who do you think is going to win? That's a false equation for a child of God. David shows up. He's there. It's almost a humorous family story. He's there to deliver bread and cheese to his brothers, the real men. They sort of make fun of him for hanging around and telling him to go back and take care of his little lambs. It's a put-down. David asked the fateful question, why aren't we fighting? 
And then he says this shocking thing, I'll go. He doesn't say that because he's arrogant. He doesn't say that because he's a man's man. Because he says this, he delivered God, he delivered the lion, and he delivered the bear, and he'll deliver this Philistine this day. David knows who God is, and David knows who he is. Surrounded by identity amnesiacs, this man understands God's beauty and understands that beauty has been unleashed on him by grace. David says, I'll go. And David is saying to himself, it's not me, puny me, against this huge giant. It's this puny little giant against Almighty God. Who do you think's going to win? And he starts down into that valley dressed as a shepherd with nothing but a wimpy sling and five stones. When he goes into that valley, I hear the timpani drums begin to roll. And as he's walking closer to Goliath, I hear the drums roll louder and louder. You just know there's going to be some kind of carnage. And then he starts doing this with his sling. And he does that. I hear the cymbals begin to crash. And the timpani is rolling. And you see this dramatic scene. You wonder what in the world is going to happen. And he lets go of that stone. It hits the temple of that giant. He falls down, knocked out. David runs over, grabs his sword, and cuts off his head. There's an unbelievable painting. The Metropolitan Museum of New York City. It's worth going there just to see that painting of this young man holding this huge severed head by the hair. Glory of God. Listen. That walking into that valley is a picture of gospel endurance. It's what you do when you know who you are and you know what you've been given. If David was living out of any other identity, he wouldn't have thought for a moment of going into that valley. But he knew the awesome beauty of his Lord and he knew that that beauty, that beauty had been unleashed on him by grace. And he persevered when he was surrounded by people who had already quit 40 days ago. There it is. You will never endure unless you know who you are. And here's how you are. Here's who you, who you are as God's child. All the glory of who God is, He is for you by grace. If you're a divine beauty amnesiac, you will be an identity amnesiac. If you lose sight of who God is, you lose sight of who you are, and you'll look for identity where it can't be found. I would ask you this evening, what identity do you assign to yourself on Monday morning, Tuesday night, Wednesday afternoon, and the exhausted Saturday at the end of a long week? Maybe there's 
a man here and you say, I don't think I know this God of this beauty. I want to know him. I want to have that kind of identity. I quit so often. I get discouraged so often. I get afraid so often. I would plead with you, don't leave the room without getting help. In this service, you come, you come up front. There will be people here that can help you. Don't leave without getting help. Maybe you're, you're sitting here, you're thinking... Oh, there's times, Paul, I get my identity, but I can, I can forget it so easy. Well, listen, share that with a brother. Have somebody encourage you and watch over you and remind you of who you are in Christ. All the beauty that God is. He is for you by grace. Any other identity that you assign to yourself is a lie. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful passage of Scripture. But we thank you even more for the reality that, that it puts before us that you are stunning, awesome in beauty. And you've unleashed that beauty on us by grace. That, that, that truth of your glory not only defines you, but it redefines who we are as your children, we would confess that we, we do become identity amnesiacs. And when we do that, we, we think, desire, and do the wrong things. Oh, won't you meet us by your grace? Won't you plant everywhere in our lives reminders of your beauty so that we would know you, and in knowing you, know who we are, and knowing who we are, live with enduring hope and courage. We pray this in the sweet and strong name of Jesus, our Savior and King. Amen.